0: Good morning, 360. Thanks for everybody being here this morning. My name's Rob Chestnut. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And if you're joining us for the first time, we're in the midst of a series called Prayer from Streams to Oceans, which was a poorly chosen title for a Sunday like this. So next week, you can join us for Prayer, It's Sunny and Not Raining. Um, We'll explain it when we get to it, but regardless. Uh, We're kind of coming to the end of our series, and I just wanted to ask everybody collectively, how has it been to pray over the course of these last few weeks? Good. Hey, okay. Awesome. Now, I know for some of you out there, though, I think the idea of praying can sometimes feel like this huge mountain that you need to climb. You know, when you think about, okay, so where would I start with? I've got these things in my life going on. I've got the, the things in these other people's life going on. I've got, I've got this stuff. To, there's this. There's war, famine. I mean, you know, everything begins to just kind of pile up, and you see this massive mountain in front of you, and you might just think, like, I can't. I don't, I've got my whole life to pray for in front of me. I, can't, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And, and maybe you've been feeling that throughout the midst of this series as we've talked about kind of the different layers, but we actually haven't said anything about here is what you should specifically pray. Because, you know, for a lot of us, the idea that like, well, you can't really, can, can I pray the wrong thing? I mean, what, what if I said the wrong words? What, what's going to happen, you know? Um, but that's, that's not really the case, and, and, and we don't believe that. But at the same time, it is helpful to get a basis or an understanding of kind of where to start from. When I was a kid growing up in church, uh, for me, being the pastor's kid, you know, there's certain responsibilities and roles that you are just given. One of them in particular is making sure you pray better than anybody else in youth group, okay? And so, in doing so, and you know, and and this for me was just, this was a ministry I was offering people, all right? Uh, My command and grasp of the English language was better than anybody else's. I was an aspiring theater dork. So, you know, I had a, I had a concept of words that was just, you know, anathema <laughs> to others. And, um, <laughs> so that is the right, that's the right, I think. Okay. No. Um, Andrew, you can give me a yay or a nay if I worked the wrong word in or not. I think maybe not, but anyway, uh, the, the I felt when it came time to pray, I needed to say the right thing and I needed to sound the right way in order to come across, in order to, you know, I I, I didn't want to blow it, so to speak, but also too, I I was a little concerned with myself, if we're going to be honest. And so, you know, I, I knew that as we'd sit at that table, if it started over here, that meant I had like four or five before it was going to get to me, and man, I just started to like churn the in my head, I mean, over and over and over again, so that when it came time, it was just like, gracious Father, Lord God, who reigneth above all others, thank you for this given day, for the sun." you know, and it would just kind of go on and on and on, and, and, and um, you know, but my goal in the midst of that was to try and achieve, you know, that, you know that head nod when you do like a good prayer, or you say the right thing, and you get the people around you, and they go, uh, Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> My brother lovingly referred to it as cookies, like because everyone goes, Mmm, cookies. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> yeah, cookies. Mm. But you know, for me, I was I was trying to achieve this. You know, I, I wanted that attention from others. I, I I wanted to pray the right way and sound the right way and say the right thing so it held everybody else's attention. But then there was this other kid, Brian. And Brian Nesfetter. Um, by all rights, was not the kid that my parents wanted me to hang out with uh, when church was over. He was rough and tumble. He got into trouble. He wasn't a good kid by anybody's standards. But when Brian prayed, Brian just talked to God. And he talked to God like you interact with someone that you know really well. And it drove me crazy that, you know, I put all this effort into it and he would just talk he just talked and yet as I think back on it I can still see the kitchen the back of the kitchen that we met in in that church growing up and I don't remember the words but I remember his heart and I remember his soul and even all these years later you know when I think about somebody who prayed I think of that kid and I don't know where he is now I don't know what he's doing but there was something and when it came time to pray it just came out of him naturally and for a lot of us, I think, still, we try, and, we try and wrestle with that idea of, like, maybe if I just say, again, the right things, if I work in the right words. But think about that, though. I mean, h- how do we interact and engage with the people around us? I mean, I don't prep and plan the words in my head before I go and speak with someone like, Doug Pohl, there sitteth. Behold, t'was a marvelous day to be in thy presence recently. Thanks be for you and your wife and the bountiful dish they preparedeth. I mean, like, you know, I don't. we don't say those things. I mean, maybe you'd like that. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, you know, even even with my wife, when I try and, like, uh, say something, you know, and I, I try and get a little, like, you know, a little Shakespeare on or something along this line of just, like, darling, she's not here, so I can get away with this even better than now, but, uh, you know, darling, you shine with the radiance of a new morning, and I just love, and she usually, like, within about six seconds, I get this, what do? you? what do you want? Like, <laughs> just get, get on with it. What, what, what do you want? I mean, obviously there's something else in there. And you know, again, these, these forced words, these forced words that we try and come up with to sound good and appear good and we're searching for that right thing, what does it do? It just kind of falls flat because the relationship is really what you're going for. That was the difference in that kid who sat at that table. That's the difference when we speak with other people is it's the relationship that's there. Jesus himself even speaks to this idea of kind of going on and on with words and praying and such. Because again, we sometimes feel like when we're stuck, we just got we, we to keep the plane aloft, okay? We're not landing this sucker. It's just staying up here and we're just going the same way. But you know, in Matthew chapter 6, and you guys can go ahead and turn in Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to hang out today. So you can go there in your Bibles or your devices or the, the verses will be up on the screen as well. But in Matthew chapter six, Jesus says this. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now I want to clarify something first here. This isn't to say, well, it is to say that God knows what you want before you say it because he's God, but that's not to say that you don't have to pray because God knows what you want because he's God. We still need to engage in that dynamic. We need to engage in that relationship of being connected to him. But when we are connected to him, we don't need to go, lo for soweth, and henceforth thus saith me, I, Robert, lowly sinner, Lord. You know, like that's, that's not it. That's not what he's looking for. Uh, honestly, th- this is more of a less is. Less is more. Less is more. And we, we hear that phrase all the time. And when you look at other pieces of like written word or text or something along this line, the Gettysburg Address, probably the most famous speech that's been written in the English language, and it consists of 286 words. The Declaration of Independence is 1,322 words. And the federal regulation for the sale of a head of cabbage in the United States of America consists of 26,911 words. This is why whole foods cost so much. Um, That one worked. Uh, but you know, we, when, when you start to draw things out and you start to pad all that information out there, it loses its value in something that could just simply be like, you want to sell a head of cabbage? There you go. Uh, instead, we blow it up, we balloon it, and sometimes our prayers suffer from the same thing, and it comes from maybe we just don't know what to say. Maybe we're searching for those ideal words, and so instead of like, just sticking with little, we just keep going. And thankfully we have something actually that allows us to pray the things needed to pray and not go on and on and on. And it's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It's the model prayer that we want to talk about today. And the Lord's Prayer actually consists of 56 words. 56 words, that's it. But what's interesting to think of is that this small little phrase, these little chunks of sentences, those 56 words have been around for thousands of years. And while they're super important and carry all this weight, they've also lost, I think, some of their value because they've been around for so long and it has been repeated ad nauseum over and over and over again. Martin Luther Martin Luther in the 1500s said, the Lord's prayer is the greatest martyr on earth. Just as the name and the word of God is, for everyone abuses it, few comfort it and make it happy through using it correctly. This was in the 1500s, Martin Luther saying, man, this thing's getting worn out. It's just, you know, we are beating a dead horse with the Lord's prayer. So what does that mean for us in the 2000s when we're still trying to say it? And when I told Audrey, like, this is what I'm going to pray. You know, I'm going to do the Lord's prayer this week. And she just said, man, before every football game, when I was in school, we did the Lord's prayer before every marching band competition in school. We did the Lord's prayer before every volleyball tournament in school. We did the Lord's prayer. She went to school in Texas, by the way, if you can't tell. And, it became overused and essentially underappreciated because it just became this thing we just threw out there for the sake of throwing out there and it didn't carry any weight. It didn't carry any meaning anymore. And, and the reality though, as you think about it, if you look back at the early church and how it spread outward and kind of continued on from there, historically, when it came to writing the Bible in a new language, the first thing that got translated was the Lord's Prayer. The very first thing. For many people, it was the compass by which they would start the translation effort because that amount of phrases and sayings and things, we give a good grasp of the grammar along that line. I I did some research and there's books from the 16th century that just contained all it was was the Lord's Prayer in tons of different languages. Because that that was the model. You learn in this, okay, you can learn in this, you learn in this, you learn in this. So in some ways, even before the Bible was given to people, the Lord's prayer was given to people. And, And what value, though, does it hold for us now? It's just something we say. And yet, it's also the prayer that Jesus himself gave to us on earth. So like, it's foolproof, everybody. You can't mess that one up, all right? He said, pray this so you can't really get it wrong. So let's look in Matthew chapter six verses nine through 13 at this little section. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the Lord's prayer. Now, when you dissect something, you usually kill it. Frogs, jokes, for me, cars, if I were to put that in the last category. Uh, and that's, that's not what I'm looking to do. We, we don't want to take this apart word by word, so now it becomes some like scientific formula you throw up on a screen. But instead, it's more the idea of understanding that the Lord's Prayer was not originally written in English, it was written in a different language and other languages do a much better job of conveying and communicating emotion and feeling and weight than our language does, sorry. So what we want to do today is kind of break down these different stanzas and understand why it was written the way it was so that we can see it in a different light. So that when it comes to us saying the Lord's Prayer it does not become some droll thing we recite but it becomes the prayer that God wants us to pray. So I'm gonna take a page out of my own reading of the Bible and not continue on talking and get straight to it. So if you look in Matthew chapter six, verse nine, the very beginning, our father in heaven, our father in heaven. Now what's fascinating about this opening stanza right here is that this father is literally the, the parental dynamic as close as you can possibly be. It's our father, it's, it's dad, it's daddy, it's papa, it's whatever word you used growing up that you uh, chimed into. I have two little girls at home and my favorite part of the day is coming home after the end of work because I open up the door and I get two blonde streaks of lightning that come at me full force and Adria who's, you know, just not even two yet, she's still no grasp of the English language, but she runs at me full force and just goes, daddy, 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 daddy," and then boom, right there on the lake. That's what this is. Th- that's what this dynamic is. You're getting as close as you possibly can in that relational aspect of saying, our father, dad, recognizing who he is and who you are in connection to him. That's where you find yourself in this part. And what's interesting is, you know, gr- growing up, people would pray and they'd say things like, Dad, you know, they'd start to pray and they'd start with like, Dad or Daddy or Papa or whatever. And I would just be like, what's wrong with you people? Well, you know you're praying to? You're praying to God. That's dumb. And now I look at it and I go, no, I was wrong. This this is the approach we should have. We, We should be so comfortable with God that we would interact with him like we would interact with our parents. That dynamic, that closeness, you would want to hold him there. But what's interesting is, immediately after we say that and we go here, our Father in heaven, what's next? Hallowed be your name. And so this is the next one, again in verse nine, hallowed be your name. So we're going from right here, the close dynamic to hallowed be your name. Now, if you hallow something, you are making it holy. You are making it perfect. You are setting it apart. It is gonna be different from anything else you interact with. And the name of God, who he is specifically, carries so much weight and grandeur and power that you can't help but stand back and go, whoa, so it's this very incredible dynamic of being so close, and then yet in a split second, got to stand back. For, for me, it's that image almost, if, if we can just engage our imaginations a little bit here. But imagine imagine that your father is the king of England. Okay, Imagine what kind of access you would have that you, know, you could go and sit on his lap on the throne All right. And he's there and he could speak with you and talk to you and ask like, how was your day? Tell me how you're doing. Just one second, buddy. And he sets you down and then he goes and he puts the crown on his head and he like steps out to Buckingham Palace and addresses the whole nation kind of thing. Think of your relationship. Think of your interaction of like, that's my dad that's who I get to call dad? Like two seconds ago, we were like being silly and now he's wearing a crown, he's got a scepter, he's addressing the whole country. You know, you, you, you carry that weight and significance. I, I think it's funny even like, you know, if you interact with somebody who's you know, like powerful or famous or whatever else, even like TV commentators, as much as they hate president, you know, pick your president, doesn't matter. But you know, the one side that hates the other guy and boy, they hate him. But if you put him in the same room together, have you ever watched that and what happens then? Mr. President, it's wonderful to be here, sir. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate everything you're doing. Don't listen to what I'm saying on TV. It's just all for show, but really, you're a great guy. No, thank you, thank you, no, thank you, thank you. I mean, there's that reverence that comes from the relationship. There's that reverence that comes from understanding who you're dealing with, correct? And this is what we find ourselves in. So we are super close in that access, and yet instantaneously we stand back and we go, hallowed be your name. So not only are we recognizing who God is in saying this statement, but it's also recognizing who we are in this statement. And this is something like to help pull out a little bit more. If you're in the presence of someone like that, you get a mentality of Psalms 19 verse 14 that says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When you interact with God at that level, you're like, whoa, okay, hey, I I know who I am and I know what I can and can't do. And I want to make sure I say the right thing and be the right person because I'm aware of who I'm with. And God continues on from there. The prayer continues on from there. And we stay within these heavenly realms because the next statement is in verse 10, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom as you read throughout the scripture. In fact, he himself refers to the kingdom of heaven 31 times in the book of Matthew. And throughout the entire New Testament, the kingdom of God is referred to 68 times. So this kingdom dealing is something of significance. This kingdom mentality is something that's constantly on his mind and on, and on his lips. But what is the kingdom specifically that we're referring to? This is the end of all things. This is the reconciliation of God and man together as they were in the garden. It is bringing about a perfection, a level of relationship that hasn't existed, and this is what we want. We want this close, we want this coming. This is why he came to earth to preach the good news to talk of that opportunity to bridge the gap and to bring back what was lost in paradise. This is that idea. This is that high-level VIP Revelation 21 type stuff, okay? This is the real deal that we're asking for. And what's interesting is, in order for your kingdom come, that's gonna require something. In order for his kingdom to come, it's gonna require something. And that steps into the next phrase, again in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, here's two things at play here within that phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because, first off, it's that willingness on our part to say, God, I want you to do what you need to do on earth in order for the kingdom to come. But there's the other side of it as well where we get to say, God, I also want to be a part of what's happening. So not only allowing you to happen, but allowing me to have a part within it. This is the reason why when you accept Jesus as your savior and you decide to become a Christian, you don't just disappear and you're gone like everybody instantly up to heaven, but you get to stick around, you get to be here because you have a part to play in that will. You have a part to play within that kingdom coming and this is why we get to stay, this is why we get to be here. And the dynamic of on earth as it is in heaven because heaven is already that place of perfection where Jesus has come from, we know that that's what we're aiming for and we want to have that here on earth. So again, to recap where we get to at this point, our father in heaven, close, personal, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, high level heaven stuff, where do we go to next? We come back here because the next line and the next phrase is give us this day our daily bread. And what it means for that idea of daily bread is, what do you need specifically? What do you need specifically? God goes from the upper levels and he comes right back down to you again. So he's right here. He says, just you and me, what is it that you need for today? How can I be here for you And the reason we say give us this day our daily bread is because it's a a specific allotment of time. It's not, God, please give me everything I need for the rest of my life because then I don't really need anything else and I'll be good to go. But instead, that idea of praying it over and over again, coming back and recognizing, okay, what is it that we need for today? What is it that we need for today? Not talking about tomorrow, we're talking about right now. We're talking about this finite time And now for some of us, as we read this line and we say, give us this day our daily bread, and we as Americans in the 21st century have enough daily bread for seven months in our pantry, uh, that's not what we're talking about either. It's not the physical needs. It is a part of it, but it's also more of what's going on with you right now. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you are praying, God, give me a miracle. Maybe you're asking or searching for something. Maybe you just need to be reminded of who you are. That's your daily bread. That's what God is coming close to say. What do you need today? How can I meet your needs today? And in what way can I do that? So he gets close and personal again. He gets right there with you, right in front of you, because this is the dynamic of the relationship. Our Father in heaven And once you have identified who he is, he comes right back to you and says, now let's talk. What do we need? What can we go about here? What's on your plate for today? And then he stays in that same area, which I think is really cool because he wants to keep it close. We're still talking about you. So after we say, give us this day our daily bread, now comes the next line. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, so again, staying close. We've talked about the needs. We've talked about the physical, the tangibles. We've talked about some of those pieces, but now we're gonna get to some heart issues. Now we're gonna talk about what's going on with you inside. So this is why we say the line, forgive us our debts, And your translation might say debts, your translation might say trespasses, it might say something else, but essentially it all comes down to the same thing, sin, sin. What is that thing that has separated you from God? What is that thing that has made you miss the mark? What's that thing that's moved you in the wrong direction? What do we need to ask forgiveness for? And so forgive us our sins, essentially, as we forgive others. Yes. Other sins? No. As we forgive others, we're not to be caught up in the things that other people are doing. We're not to be caught up in the sins that other people are committing. That's not what God is saying is appropriate right now. You need to concern yourself with the heart of the other person and not specifically what they're doing. This one gets a little kind of like, oh, uh, cause it's not really what I wanted. You know, we want to look at the sin of the other person and go, but God, look what they're doing. It's terrible. It's awful. It's wonderful. It's horrible. You know, whatever else. And he's saying, no, 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 no. We're talking about you. And the reason we're talking about you is because that's how this relationship works. And once you've understood how this relationship works, that's going to give you enough ammo and energy and your own ability to look at the people around you and say, I need to forgive them too. Because if God has forgiven me of all the things that I've done in my life, why should I withhold forgiveness from somebody else? And the Bible is super clear on this one. In Mark uh, chapter 11, verses 25, Jesus says this, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. At the end of giving the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, he actually goes back to that same line again essentially and says, make sure you forgive other people because that's how God is gonna be able to forgive you. Now, this is not a this for that type thing that God's going to forgive me of all the things I've done if I just forgive everyone around me. That's not how the gospel works. What you are actually going to see is because God has forgiven me of all the things that I've done, because I've been pardoned and I'm set free, it is therefore the energy, the ammo that allows me to forgive the people around me, and that's grace. That's a little shot of grace right there in case you were wondering. And it's a beautiful thing. And again, if you have questions about that part, it comes up again and again and again within scripture of the importance of us forgiving the people around us because God has forgiven us of what we've done specifically. Deal with our own heart specifics. We don't need to worry so much about everybody else around us. So that gratefulness, of being forgiven then moves us into this next section that again still kind of deals with that sin dynamic and I feel again this is God you know this is us staying close again in this next phrase. So Matthew 6:13 says this and lead us not into temptation. Now maybe this one might get a little tricky for some of us as we read it and we say like okay so so God's God's going to bring me into temptation like God's going to God's gonna pull me into this? Like, how, how does this work? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I wanna clarify this one in particular, and the Bible is super clear on how God and temptation, how that dynamic works. And it's not the way it kind of seems like when it initially comes out. James 1, 13 and 14 says this, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, but he himself, the individual, the individual, tempts no, no, but he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So what this is essentially saying is not the sense that, you know, God is throwing you in this dynamic, but that God allows things to happen in our lives that are going to test us that are going to be that dynamic of temptation that we're gonna come in contact with. Like, I, I don't need anyone to remind me of what my primary sins are, okay? I do not have a gambling problem. If I lose 25 cents on one of those slot things, I am wrecked for a week, okay? The enemy is not hitting me with like, guess who got a free trip to Vegas? You know, Those things don't pop up in my mailbox, okay? Those are not the things that hit me, but the things that do, oh boy. I don't need to pray, God, lead me not into temptation that I start a gambling problem or something. That doesn't happen. But the other things that do lead me into temptation, I know what those faults are. I know what my pride feels like. I know what my ego does. And I know that that's where I'm getting pulled. This is the dynamic that James is talking about is it's not God specifically throwing me into the mix, but he's saying there are things that are gonna happen in this world, like Job we talked about the other week. There are things you're gonna encounter and you have an option Just step in or step back. This is why we pray, lead us not into temptation. It's God, help me not go there, essentially is what it's saying, but is that always the case? We pray it and we're very like, we're well-intentioned, but it doesn't work that way. As much as we try and strengthen our faith in that part, there's still the likelihood that we're gonna fall. A great example of it in particular is found in the story of Peter, right before Jesus and the disciples go and pray in the garden of Gethsemane. So as, as that story goes, the Last Supper is taking place. And in the midst of the Last Supper, Peter, disciple extraordinaire, gets up and he just says, Lord, I'm gonna follow you to the end. And I will never deny you under any circumstances whatsoever. And Jesus looks back at him and he says, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And I imagine Peter in his own like, you know, headspace or whatever is just like, oh, come on. No, he's, he's, he's being funny again. I mean, come on, I am the rock, right? I mean, that's what, he, you kind of named me that. Like, I think I've got, you know, keys to the kingdom. Like, I would think we've talked about that point. And yet, we go to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says this in Mark 14, 37 to 38. And he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What Jesus is saying here is that, Peter, you were very well-intentioned when you said, Lord, I'm never going to deny you. And your spirit probably says, Lord, I'm never going to deny you. But when you actually left this garden and you followed me into that courtyard around that fire and people ask, were you with him? What does he do? I wasn't with him. I know what you're talking about. I know what the heck you're talking about. In other words, not found in the Bible, he begins to go off and he denies Christ three times. Peter falls right into that temptation. And this is what happens for a lot of us is we're very well intentioned in that dynamic of saying, Lord, please don't let this happen again today. But the likelihood may be if we're not praying, if we're not active of being led not in temptation, we're gonna go. But this is where Christ, continuing in his love, lead us not into temptation, and what's the next part? But deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. God knows in that closeness of relationship, I love you, but I know you're probably gonna mess up. And when you do, I'm gonna give you a way out. This is what that prayer is. Deliver us from evil in verse 13. And it's interesting. So you have this kind of before or after. Lead us not into temptation in hopes that I don't, but deliver us from evil if I should. Augustine is very famous for saying that if you conquer thine own self, the whole world is conquered because our flesh fights and wrestles against us of the things we do or not want to do. And this is where that comes into play. So, Lord, I've messed up, I've fallen in, deliver us from evil, rescue me from that. Give me salvation, pull me out of that place. And what's interesting, too, is the word evil, in particular, is used, evil, and that's something we just don't throw around regularly in our you know, everyday vocabulary. I feel it still holds the weight and the value that it should in the original language because evil is the consequences of the sin that happened. Evil is the pain that you're dealing with. Evil is the results maybe of what happened. This is that outward ripple of the enemy, of the evil one, as he's referred to, who pulls you in. And this is what we pray to get out of it. Now, some of you might be aware that there's maybe a little bit more as you've said the Lord's Prayer before and it seems to be missing at the moment. And so for the record, in the official languages back when it was first written and whatnot, there was no doxology. Somewhere at the tail end of the second century, a bunch of other Christians decided to tag this on there. So you might know the Lord's Prayer a little bit more with that proper ending of, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's it. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no extra pieces. There's no added addendums. There's no seven or eight other volumes or podcasts you need to listen to. That's it. That's what he gives us. This is the Lord's prayer, as simple and easy and yet as profound as it is So what do we do from here? Where do we go from here, church? Well, first off, pray it. Pray it. Remember, Jesus said this, okay? You're not going to mess this one up if you say it back to him. This is what he asked for. In fact, he did it on two separate occasions. He says the same thing essentially in Matthew and then again in Luke when his disciples ask him. So this is This is okay to repeat. This is okay to work back in. This is okay to use as the prayer that you need to start. So if you don't have the words, these are the words you need and nothing else. Now what's cool, I think, is that you can use this essentially as an outline because if you don't just want to keep repeating and repeating, and I get that, it can again lose its value and it's hard to maintain something fresh that way. So, you can take a page from Martin Luther, who was apparently the world's first jazz man, because Martin Luther would riff on the Lord's Prayer, okay? And what we mean by that is he would say the line, and then he would add something to it in a sense of his own context, his own needs, his own everyday things that he was encountering. So essentially using the Lord's Prayer as kind of like a bullet point, and then putting his own life, his own kind of meat into it. So let me give you an example, all right? And this is, these are his exact words. This is what he would do. He would pray. Uh, we'll, we'll take this line, give us this day our daily bread. And then immediately he adds, I commend to thee my house and property, wife and child. Grant that I can manage them well, supporting and educating them. That's it. So essentially what he's doing is saying, I'm going to take this phrase. I'm going to say the main phrase, give us this day our daily bread. But then I'm going to put what my daily need is on the end of that. And that's going to help me to pray. That's going to help me to draw that out. And I hope for you, if you're finding there sitting saying, I don't know what to pray, you can use this as an outline. And to take it a step further, if you look on the inside of your weekly this week for your takeaway, we've done just that. So once more, you have the Lord's Prayer written out in here. And this is taken from uh, that book, prayer by Philip Yancey that I mentioned before. And so here are just individual prayers that he wrote in context to each one of these different sections to help draw it out a little bit more, to give it life, to use it as an outline in your own prayer life. If you find yourself saying, I don't know what to say. This is our God saying, here, I've got this. Use this and go from there. This is what we want to build upon. So, would you pray with me right now? And we'll put the words up on the screen so that everybody can see it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.